Hello and welcome to Beyond the Page, a Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm talking with Drew Hart. Uh, Drew is a public theologian and theology professor at Messiah University. He's also the author of Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Uh, Drew, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. This is a pleasure to be uh, in conversation with you. So I, I guess just to start, the best thing to do would would be just to give the listeners an overview of what the book is about, what you were trying to accomplish. Yeah, I was really um, writing the book um, just because I saw that there were so many churches that, you know, they were awakening to the racial problems in our society. In fact, I was doing a lot of talks all around the country for my first book, Trouble I've Seen, got really great responses, but people were like, you know, what does it look like to actually pursue justice? And so that was kind of the origins of the of the book was wanting to help people think out what is this public faith, faith in the public square look like to work for justice and struggle for the good of all. But I really wanted to go much deeper than that. And anybody that even skims through the book will realize that there's so much more than just strategy. Um, but really, it's um, recovering Jesus from the domesticated, whitened, westernized Jesus that has been passed on in our society. It's about remembering our history, the mangled and entangled uh, legacy of the church with white supremacy and colonialism and ongoing expressions of, of injustice um, in our society today, and also um, the church grappling with, you know, what does it mean to be the church and how do we live out our faith in the public square in faithful and effective ways that actually work for social change because we love our neighbors. And so that's really the heart of what the book was trying to do. One thing that really struck me as I read through this book was the the deep connection between the theology, the history, and then the practicality. Um, of, you, you you brought all those things together in the book very well. I've I've read a lot you know on the subject of racial justice, and there are a lot of books out there that are simple, just like you know how to strategies. How, here's how you start. Um, but they, 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 they may not necessarily have a very robust theological background, or they may talk about the history of social justice or the history of racial inequality, um, but they don't live as much in the practical sphere of like, okay, you have this information, but what do we do with it? Um, or books that may talk about the theology of, you know, the Imago Dei, we're all created in the image of God, and, and but not not bring it into the specifics of racial justice or how we treat people in the community or economic injustice. And what what stood out to me about this book was the way it was able to weave all of those threads together. So at the outset, I just want to say thank you for writing this book. Thank you for being um, so careful to include all three of those aspects to develop this really robust sense of theology and orthodoxy and orthopraxy as well. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate you saying that because I mean, in some ways it was a little daunting at first me, like, like, am I really going to try to do all of this? Um, and how is this all going to work together? Right. But in some ways they all have, like, you can't deal with one without the other. They're so interrelated. And so I knew I had to find a way to articulate all of those things and grasp with the theology, the history, the practice, all of that together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You'd said that you wrote this book because 
you felt like it was in need for the church at this time, that you saw churches that were awakening to social and political injustice, and they're trying to figure out how to how to work in it. Uh, you know, m- I would I would guess that most of my audience are like me, we're white evangelicals, and we've we've recently had our you know status quo shaken, and you know the black church is looking at us like you know finally you you, you finally got here. Uh, the the reaction to a lot of people in my community is I've had my eyes opened now what do I do? And we also have the tendency in the white church now to get a little bit of knowledge and we just kind of rush headlong into it. Like, okay, I got it. Let's go. I'll take the lead. And that shouldn't be the case at all. What should the white church be doing now that it's had its eyes open? If you just if you can just give me this, you know, the practicalities of everything, what where should we start? Yeah, I mean, number one, I would say that most folks that have gotten their eyes opened need to continue to, if it, it's not a one-time thing. That's why, like, the danger of the word woke can give the perception that it's a, a once and done. But it's actually an awake, ongoing awakening, right? <laughs> um, it's ongoing work. There, there needs to be learning and unlearning, getting unsettled, um, being stretched further and further. And I think that that's actually a part of the work is that. Now, that's not, that can't be the only work, right? There's some communities that they would love the idea of just doing book study after book study on injustice, right? And think that that's the work. Now we're doing it. Uh, um, that's not the work in and of itself. But, but I don't also want to dismiss that, that that's part of the work that has to happen. <clears throat> but then um, on the other side of it is, you know, there are practical ways that we can get involved and partner with the good work that's already happening in our neighborhoods. And so when I end the book towards the end of it, um, I really get very practical with strategies for social change, right? Um, community organizing, nonviolence, movements, right? Even how to rethink how we engage with the electoral process, right? In ways that don't keep us captive to those who are in power, but really help us, um, you know, respond to the needs of our own communities. And so, yeah, there's a variety of actual grassroots strategies for congregations on the ground to do the work. At the near the beginning of the book, I think it's like your second or third chapter, uh, and and you know, we'll we'll get to some of the things that you talked about um, just later in the podcast. Uh, but I, I want to make sure that I that I hit on this point. Um, you you have a chapter in this entitled "Liberating Barabbas," and it it changed. It, it, you know, it, it really I had I had thought about all these things in sort of their disparate individualized sections i never really brought it all together the way that you did uh in the book in how we tend to view barabbas and how we tend to view the political situation of the time uh can you i i can't do it justice so if you can just tell the listeners what what you mean by liberating barabbas and when did you uh come to that conclusion and how did it change the work that you do yeah, um, and this this is the one chapter that I get the most feedback from because over and over again, people are saying like, wow, you really helped us see what in some ways seems so clear after the fact, right? Um, but you don't necessarily see otherwise. Um, for me, I'll start with my own journey. It was actually a while ago that I kind of stumbled upon it. <clears throat> I was um, 
preparing for a sermon probably like right after I, I was probably like 21, 22 or something like that and working on a sermon as a youth pastor and something about Barabbas was just captivating me, you know? Um, and, and I, that, so it, that was when the thread began way back. I mean, that would have been, you know, maybe 18 years ago. Um, but since then, yeah, um, I just continued to read and learn about the first century, what was going on, the boot, the Jewish sects, the movements that were happening at that time. Judaism was diverse. It wasn't just one thing. Um, and to, to realize that Barabbas was a part of this kind of revolutionary thread that existed that really it ties back to, you know, the Maccabees and, and these other movements, radical movements that were anti-empire from before. And what we see in the text is not how people often describe Barabbas. Barabbas sometimes is described as like some movies, he's cockeyed and he's drooling at the mouth and he's a, a crazy serial killer and all these kind of things. And I think I joke in the book, you know, that we, we, we think of him as like, you know, the Zodiac killer, the Joker or something that's just randomly killing people because um, he's just a sinful person for no reason. Um, but what we actually see is that in the text, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them all talk about Barabbas and, and they all identify him as someone who participated in the insurrection or in the uprising or um, uh, one was the abandoned, which was in the first century, a way of talking about a revolutionary movement. And so if you understand who Barabbas is, he's not this random serial killer. He's more like what many times we might call a freedom fighter, right? Or in the black community to associate him with someone like Nat Turner, who um, participated in an uprising, right, um, against slavery. Like, that's a better way of beginning to understand him. So then the question is, why is Barabbas so important? Why does he show up in every single um, Jesus story, right, in the Gospels? Why does he show up at the climax of the story? Why do they find it so necessary to include him? And we don't even get the Christmas, the Jesus story, birth story in all of the Gospels, right? Really, Luke and maybe you could say in half of, of, of Matthew gives a little bit um, if it's even a, a birth story at all. <clears throat> and so... I think that that, um, you know, forces us to ask some real serious questions about that placement and what it means about Jesus. That's really what's at stake is, is that Barabbas, his placement, it says something about Jesus. And it's not, none of them are saying that he's a, a substitute for Jesus's life, right? That he took Barabbas's place. Or it's always sociopolitical in terms of his description of Barabbas. And because of that sociopolitical description, it helps us see something about Jesus's sociopolitical commitments as well. In fact, it's the Gospel of Matthew that actually clarifies it the most. There in the Gospel of Matthew, um, the the setup is there is that, you know, the religious leaders um, have a choice um, that are being set up between Barabbas and Jesus, but actually the oldest manuscripts actually say, um, who do you want, you know, Jesus the Christ, or Jesus you call the Christ, or Jesus Barabbas. And so Jesus Barabbas is actually a part of his name. And, and if you think about the meaning of that, Jesus means Joshua or Yeshua, the one who saves, the liberator, right? Um, the deliverer. Then like that's literally the name that is attached to both of them. And so all of a sudden, Gospel Matthew, who do you want as your deliverer? Who do you want as your savior? Who, who are you going to trust to deliver you from 
the circumstances that you find yourself in. And it's not a spiritual gospel versus a social gospel. Um, they both care about the social conditions of their world. We see that all through Jesus's teaching um, and his life, his kingdom ministry on earth, caring for the poor, caring for those who are hungry, healing the sick. Um, the real issue is how do we get there, right? Or as Jesus in Luke 19, you know, um, as he laments, if only they had known the things that make for peace. And so it's really about the way in which we get there. And that's really the power of this passage is, is inviting us to reimagine how God works in the world and how God is working through Jesus Christ, not in a way that is stigmatizing the Barabbases of the world. It's actually, if anything, emphasizing and helping us to understand that, yeah, there are these folks that are going to go this other way. I mean, that's how Jesus and Luke kind of sees it. He empathizes and laments over the destruction that will come for folks that take that path, but instead opens us up to believe that we don't have to use the same methods that the empire uses, right, to bring social change, that we can trust God's kingdom and God's ways and participate in radical, nonviolent revolutionary work in the way of Jesus. And I think that that's really a powerful um, invitation for all of us as followers of Jesus. Yeah, it, it it really struck me because it does then set up this idea of the the in in, in some ways because uh, be careful with with how I word things in some ways the goals of Barabbas and the goals of Jesus are not altogether different. They have right. many they they're, they're many many similarities. So the question becomes, which type of savior will you choose? Will you yep. and in the context of you know this this week, um, this last week of Jesus, uh, you know just a few days prior to this, he's, he's had his triumphal entry uh, into Jerusalem, and people expected him to behave in the manner of Barabbas at this right. time, and instead what we see is you have all this messianic buildup as he makes the the journey toward Jerusalem. The days are ongoing. Everyone is going toward Jerusalem for the Passover, so it's not like he's doing this thing by himself. But there's a crowd that's gathering. There's all of this expectation. There's all of this weight, and and Jesus kind of just enters the 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 temple and looks around and then leaves. And right. it, it it's so you know it, it's the greatest anticlimax in all of literature and all of history. Yep. And um, it really sets up the contrast uh, between Barabbas and Jesus. And then for Jesus then to come back and cleanse the temple, to not attack the political system, but to attack the religious system and to attack the religious elite, uh, was really like, like it, it really changed the conversation. And then when we apply that principle to the way in which we do social justice now, I think it would really change the way in which we went after our goals if we looked at the way Jesus accomplished his social justice goals. Um, what, what do you see that we need to change and the way in which we perform our activism, um, especially here in 2020, when that's been such a relevant question of how do we protest? Uh, how do we make sure that our voices are heard? 
Yeah, I mean, and it really, in some ways, it depends on where we're coming from, right? Because I think different communities are approaching it differently. I think for some of us, our framing and entering into the conversation in, in terms of political engagement is deeply captive to our society and the partisan fights that are going on. And so for some of us, we start with the political platform of a particular political party, and then we just buy into that wholesale and then go fighting. And I think that that it, it allows, it's a top down, like literally there are some wealthy elite people who package up these platforms for us and then give it to us and then we say it represents our voice, right? Um, and it seems to be backwards. But I think if we take Jesus's example, we're, we're living in solidarity with those who are vulnerable. We're, we're in proximity to them and we're experiencing and witnessing and sharing in their suffering, right? And I think that that's the starting point for a grassroots work first, not starting with the elite first, but starting with the grassroots and then bringing those concerns. And, and in that sense, like Jesus's confrontation with the establishment, and especially in Gospel Luke, is particularly profound and powerful because of the confrontation that he has with the establishment, willing to, in that sense, shut it down and accept the consequences of faithfulness for bearing witness in the public square. Um the very things that are going against God's dream for all of us, right? And I think that that is a really beautiful example that doesn't leave us captive to those who are in power, but instead it does the opposite. It, it allows, like one of the things, I think it's in both Mark and Luke, Jesus actually says, um, you know, they devour, he, he's talking about the religious leaders and their long prayers and all that, and he also says, can they devour widows' homes, right? Um, it's just fascinating. Like, so he, he comes into the temple um, and the names and identifies the ways that they have gone against God's vocation for all of us, right? And I think that that is a, a, a way, more healthier way to go about social change work um, that doesn't leave our uh, imaginations restricted and, and twisted um, based on whatever happens to be going on in our society at any given time. So yeah, I think that, that we've got to um, take up our own cross in our own day we've got to be willing to accept the consequences of following jesus faithfully in our own society in such ways that include taking upon the accepting the risks um that 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 bring consequences for standing against evil and injustice right that do harm to people that are most vulnerable the least last and lost and little ones of our society i think that that that's the kind of um, orientation that we're engaged in. And Jesus is, I mean, in Gospel of Mark, it's strategic. I mean, that's what we see in, in, in Mark. It, Jesus is actually very strategic about what he's doing. Um, he's embodying um, the good news literally through his life in such a way that that it is evoking um, something in those who are watching him. They understand exactly what this means, what he's doing. Um, and it's awakening people to the, to the possibility and reality of God's reign on earth coming here and being realized um, in their own communities, um, and that they ought to then also strive after that. That's why Jesus tells us, all of us, that we all then have to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. Um, we've, we've watered down the meaning of take up your cross so much that, you know, now we think that means, you know, you don't get a parking lot at, at the store close to the door, you know, or taking up my cross for Jesus, or, you know, you you know, you're winter blanket, electric blanket breaks down in the winter, you know, oh, that's my cross to bear, you know, um, and we've 
watered it down so much that it doesn't actually mean anything in terms of what it meant in the first century, which was actually accepting the consequences of clashing with the empire, which could mean anything up to and including death, right? Like that's what it actually meant. And, um, and so we've watered it down to domesticate it to our comfortable lifestyles. And we've got to recover a more nonviolent, revolutionary witness that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mm-hmm. I want you to, to keep on this thread of nonviolence because that, you know, I, I've had this conversation so many times um, since the murder of George Floyd and the, the sometimes violent reactions that there have been to that. Um, provoked or not, and that 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 seems to be for for the more I think for many on the conservative white evangelical side, um, there's always this well, you know we we have to condemn the rioting um, we all the way up to the the increased level of, of police violence is justified because of the behavior uh, or alleged behavior of the way in which these protests are going about. And, right. you know, I, I have to say, you know, I, I personally cannot condone any sort of violence. I myself, uh, you know, practice nonviolence in peacekeeping. Um, but I understand, like I empathize so thoroughly with this, you know, it, it, it is, and not not to, I don't say this to um, belittle the emotions of of those who are protesting violently, but when my three year old, um, you know, throws throws a fit, um, that is the strongest emotive reaction he has to something that matters a lot to him. Yeah. And, you know, that is where we are at um, as a society. This is, this is the, the, like, like all other less extreme methods of protest seem to have not been heard. And so extremism right. breeds extremism. And, it be, you know, and, and people feel like this is all that we have left. Um, you know, maybe this will get their attention and, and to their credit, um, in, in some ways it has, whether that is going to lead to positive change, I think we can make the argument, the argument can be made that, um, you know, violent revolutions are not as successful as nonviolent revolutions. There are studies that, that prove that I think Erica Chenoweth, um, I can remember her name, but not the book that she wrote off the top of my head. Um, did studied rev- nonviolent and violent revolutions and found that nonviolent revolutions had more staying power because what right. you, how you do a revolution, uh, then becomes the, the the kind of principles that become in power. Uh, so you you know you you end up replacing violence with violence. So how do we yeah. how do we find that line of understanding yeah. and empathizing but but we also have to take a stand and say you know we are committed to nonviolence we believe not just not just out of a sense of like 
altruism or we think it's the best, but actually because it is the most, it's the most practical solution as well. Yeah. You know, how is that, how do we retain that sense of, of nonviolence? Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the challenge is, is that we've got to have a really a healthier, robust analysis of violence as a starting point. Right. Um, and I think that if we did, it probably would shift our conversations um, quite a bit because many of the people who condemn people who are rioting and maybe burning down a building are actually, they themselves sustained by systems of violence, perpetuate systems of violence, and push ideologies that are endorsing law and order violence, right? And so even our our our, our our language needs to shift altogether if we're truly going to be committed to peacemaking and nonviolence. So the example I give is, imagine we walk into a room and we see an adult beating down on a toddler. They're just beating down on a toddler. The toddler's on their back and they're just taking a beating. And we see the toddler hit back, right? They're on their back, but they hit the adult back once. Um, now imagine how ludicrous it would be if we went, intervened and said, how wrong of you, child, for hitting back? You know that that's not constructive. That's not going to lead to this adult stopping to hit you. You know, that, that would be silly. That would be, in fact, not just silly, it would be wrong, right? Um, because our focus on that violence, supposedly, if we would even call it that at that point, is so minuscule compared to the bigger violence that's happening in that moment. And I would describe that similarly in terms of our own moment, in terms of thinking about Black people's frustrations, like the U.S. government literally has been beating down on Black people for centuries here, right? Um, centuries. And, and it's so strange all of a sudden that people want to walk into the room and see uh, a target burned down, and they want to condemn that, but have nothing to say about the centuries of violence that continue today, even in forms in terms of mass incarceration and, and police brutality and underfunding schools and ghettos and all kinds of who has access to resources, all kinds of stuff that continue to bring harm and oppression to black communities, poor black communities in particular. And, and so something's wrong with our analysis of power and, and violence and, and things like that on the bigger scale. Um, if we're only focused on, on how people respond and deal with their oppression and not deal with the systems of violence that are cycling and destroying people's lives both quickly and slowly all the time. Um, so that would be my starting point, right, is, is how do we even name and identify the violence in our world? But then I am, like, I'm a full committed follower of Jesus, um, and I deeply believe that he invites us to reimagine um, how change is actually going to come and happen in this world. Um, so when he uses that phrase of things that make for peace, he's suggesting that there are things that actually promote shalom, the flourishing of all people, the, the well-being of all uh, that we ought to be in pursuit of. And like you said, social science actually proves the fact that, that, that nonviolent movements actually have been more successful and more efficient in bringing change than nonviolent ones. That's under dictators and democracies, right? Um, it's really powerful, and they're increasingly becoming more efficient and effective while um, violent movements are becoming more and more inefficient and actually not bringing the change that they want. Now, the, the only other thing I would say is, and this is a point that I actually learned from Dr. King, right, who's deeply committed to peacemaking and nonviolence, 
is he also highlighted during his day because the same thing was happening was that um, it was fascinating to him that in the black community in the United States, compared to some like in Latin America, some of the uprisings that were going on, that most of the stuff happening where it was a destruction of property and not killing people, right? And he wanted to differentiate it and just highlight the fact that that there's something there that is at least honoring life. Um, because given what Black people have gone through, um, you might actually think that, you know, you'd have a lot more people um, slitting throats. That, that you, you, more, why not more Nat Turners, right? Given all that has gone on in our society. And so there's something there that is actually affirming the value of life that's not destroying. And it doesn't necessarily, I don't necessarily think that um, destroying property, I don't think it's productive. I don't think it actually um, does what we hope it does. In fact, I think sometimes it turns people against um, really important justice movements. But, but, that it, but when we begin to elevate um, property um, as more valuable than people, something distorted and off about our value system in and of itself. And I think it's, a, it's taking the temperature of our society in the distorted ways that we disvalue, especially Black people's lives in our society, and overvalue property in such a way that it dismisses and denies um, that Black lives actually do matter. Yeah. This is, a, this is a good segue to the chapter that you write on economic injustice, because the two are tied together. I think particularly in this age, when, when, when racism is more systemic than overt, not that there is an overt racism, uh, but that, you know, by and large, I feel like the average, the average conservative white evangelical Christian uh, looks at racism and says, well, we, we conquered that in the 60s and 70s like we got we got rid of we got rid of some you know all this overt racism but all all it did was was just you know veil itself and uh, we did nothing to to deal with the underlying racial structures that create inequity Uh, so you cannot talk about racial justice without also talking about economic justice Uh, they are they're intertwined uh, and and that is also tied to uh, the destruction of property in protest and seeing yeah. that property being valued um, greater than the lives of of uh, men and women and children who are made in the image of God. Uh, so let's let's move toward that idea of economic injustice. Can you? I'll, I'll kind of let you give the synopsis of of where where are we at in this country in terms of economic injustice and how or I guess why does it affect the black and minority communities disproportionately and what can we do to fix it and that's that's like a huge question to ask but I expect you to be able to yes. answer <laughs> you you tell me the answer and then I'll, we'll implement it okay we'll just solve all this right now. <laughs> You know, um, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that, in fact, some studies have shown that the wealth inequalities that exist today um, are about close to like what they did, like right after slavery, like um, the percentage. Right. I mean, so certainly there's there is more wealth in the black community, but in comparison to the white community, it's actually not actually hasn't moved much. 
Um, I think it was like from 0.5% up to, up to like 1% or so. I mean, something very small. I forget the exact numbers. But, um, you know, we have in our society, I mean, just to start off, our economy was built off of enslaved labor of African people, right? Um, for 250 years, if we're starting at the 1619 date, um, for 250 years, you know, black people were legally enslaved and helped to boost small little uh, colonies into a major booming global power, economic powerhouse, right? Um, by the time, in fact, from about 1800 to 1860, um, you see the, the economy is exploding exponentially because of cotton and the demand for cotton globally. In fact, you could argue everybody participated globally in what was happening, but certainly in the South in particular, in the North, because of the Industrial Revolution, made enormous money and became an uh, economic powerhouse. But Black people, of course, not only were left out, they were exploited and left out and were used, I mean, literally as chattel. I mean, that's why we call the system of slavery in America racialized chattel slavery. They were not even treated like persons. Um, but then after slavery, um, w there was almost a moment in which we, it looked like we were going to rectify things, and then America didn't, right? The Reconstruction era for about a little over a decade, and then they pulled back and they allow the South to regain new white supremacists, you know, um, power over black people, subjugating them to new forms of neo-slavery, neo-slavery in the forms of chain gangs, convict leasing, peonage, and the most biggest one would have been sharecropping system, right? All of these are mechanisms to exploit black labor, to leave them unprotected under the law, and to continue to build wealth off of their hard work. Um, and so they're left out of the economy. But what's interesting is that during the progressive era, going into the early 20th century, most white people are also struggling, right? I mean, there are definitely some very wealthy white people, but the average white person is not wealthy. So what, what happens? Our government, they intervene. They, they have a whole range of policies um, to intervene on behalf of poor white people. And the policies actually do the work, right? Um, there's credit systems and HOLC and FHA and this and that, and obviously all the way up to the New Deal, all kinds of stuff was done to help to create um, the white middle class. And it worked. Um, they were able to provide housing um, and access to loans and credit systems, all kinds of stuff um, that helps white people get a leg up and to find some financial stability and safety. And at the exact same time that that's happening, white, black people are denied access from participating in those same things. Even the Homestead Act and the GI Bill, black people are, are not able to participate and benefit from the things because of the Jim Crow and racism system that we had in our society at that time. And so you have this massive amount of wealth growing in, in for the average white person now and black people still being exploited. And, and, and in fact, they're actually undergoing terrorism, right? That's, KKK and lynching, 5,000 black men, women, and children are lynched during that time. This, we, we can't separate that from the economic realities of that time. So black people were intentionally excluded all the way up to the 20th century. And even still today, I mean, when we think about like the history of redlining, zip codes where black communities were not able to get housing and different things like that, <clears throat> historically all around the country, 
those communities that were redlined by the governments, right? This was the U.S. government, um, um, that they still are disproportionately poor, right? Um, and that there has been so much disinvestment and white flight and all these kind of things that have continued to harm these communities. And so we see the legacy of all of that. Um, and, and yet at the same time, Christians of all people are sometimes the most allergic to trying to set things right. Um, it's interesting that Christians of all people think that reparations is a bad word. It's a secular word. It's a liberal word. It's actually a Christian theology. It's about setting things right and bringing repair and healing, right? Um, if you, you can't read Jesus's, um, the Gospel of Luke without a radical critique on our economic reasoning and, and Jesus inviting us to reimagine through a jubilee ethic, uh, which is, ra- I mean, we see it manifested in a whole bunch of different ways throughout the Gospel of Luke, but most dramatically with Jesus's encounter with Zacchaeus, a tax collector who's wronged and exploited his neighbors, and he has this Jesus moment. He has this come to Jesus moment, and the response is both redistribution and reparation, right? He, he, Zacchaeus says, I'm, I'm going to give half of all my money to the poor, right? That's just redistribution right out just because the, the kingdom has come. And then he says, I'm going to give four times back what I have taken from folks, right? Uh, that's reparations. In fact, that's more than how we think of reparations. That's going above and beyond because he actually cares about their well-being. This wasn't just about calculations. This was about how can I see these people flourish moving forward? And so the jubilee ethic that we see from Leviticus in the Old Testament um, is embodied in Jesus' teaching um, all the way through the Gospel of Luke, and it's manifested in a whole variety of ways that are really radical. And I think the American church in particular, we've just we've decided that we wanted to skirt that, or we spiritualized each and every one of them. And Jesus couldn't actually mean what he said, right? I have a colleague who says, we treat Jesus like a crazy um, uncle at, at the Thanksgiving dinner who everybody knows just says off the wild, wall stuff, right? And so if you have a guest over, they'd be like, oh, that's just uncle so-and-so. He doesn't really mean what, they, what he's saying, right? And that's how we treat Jesus. That's just Jesus. He doesn't really mean, you know, all these things about the poor and the wealthy, um, and so we can just dismiss him and skirt him one more time. And so I think in our society today, um, I'm, I'm not, you know, uh, giving any like specific economic, you know, legislative suggestions per se. Like I don't do that in the book because um, I think honestly, we're we have so many brilliant people. If we wanted to set things right, we could. If we wanted to see people flourish, um, that the issue isn't how do we do it. Sometimes people get into the start arguing about. How are we going to do it? How is this going to actually work? The fact of the matter is they don't actually want it to work. Otherwise, if we wanted it to, we could be pretty creative and thoughtful and brilliant to find ways to actually uplift communities out of poverty and help to see them flourish as much as we're able to. But I think black people are often still, poor black communities in particular, um, they're seen through a stigma, through a lens in which people think uh, you know, meritocracy, people get what they deserve, right? Um, rather than people are struggling because of uh, generations of harm being done against particular communities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's, I, I think there's, there's two things that I see when, when any, any sort of, of topic of, of reparations or redistribution is brought up. And that's, that's first of all, the, the, the specter of socialism or Marxism looms large immediately any conversation that you have uh that word is thrown out that ends all rational conversation you can't get any anywhere 
from from right. there. Um, right. Doesn't matter if Jesus said it or not. Uh, right. You're a Marxist. Yeah, you're a Marxist. Um, right. you, you you hate capitalism, and I'm like, that's that's right. actually a fair. Yeah, I'll go with that one. Um, you know. And can I just say, like, I'm like, I always say, like, you know, everyone they assume I got like I've never read Marx, number one, but. But I mean, I'm like, have you read Jesus? Like, I don't need to go to Marx. Jesus has a devastating um, critique on our use of wealth and how to think about it. Um, the, have we read the, God, the book of James, right? It's just devastating, right? Um, it should be challenging for all of us, including myself. Um, so I just don't understand this assumption that it's got to come from Marx if we're making an economic critique. I mean, it seems like people are not reading Jesus enough. I think that, that people are very... They're, they're very scared to lose what they have. And that is true for a lot of the white middle class, particularly in the last uh, you know, 10, 15 years with the recession in, in 2008. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of rural middle class white, white people had their, their financial stability shaken. And um, that was true for my parents. I, you know, I witnessed that in, in, in their life as I was growing up, uh, that they felt like they had, you know, were doing well financially. And then, and then 2008 happened and, you know, they're still recovering financially from, right. from that. They are, you know, just now, 12 years later, about the same point that they were then. Um, and so there is this, you know, and and, there, and and you know, they were lucky for many of their friends and family members um, haven't recovered, and the the, the poor, uh, the rural poor, uh, this hit hard right. as well. Uh, yeah. You see, you know, jobs leaving as industries grow and change, and there's there's this there's this desperation of um, I I I barely have enough for me. How am I? Why should I be forced to to give to everyone? Right. Um, and that's a, that's a very American ethic. Uh, I don't think it's a very Christian ethic. Right. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know what we can do. And I, I think I think you you talk about this in the book uh, that the majority of Christians are at least nominally. Um, nominally believe in the prosperity gospel. They they right. may not they may not overtly believe in it. Um, you know, I there are many who do. Um, I, I spent seven years living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, which is sort of the home of uh, a few of the prosperity gospel uh, preachers, and saw mm -hmm. it in the communities that I worked in mm -hmm. during that time. But for the majority of people, it's 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 more of just a well. Of course, if Jesus loves you, He's going to bless you. When we think of blessing, we think of financial blessing. So He's going to, yeah. It, it, it's that idea which brings that meritocracy. That well, if you're poor, then there must be a reason for it. There must be a spiritual reason for it. Right. Yeah. How lazy, do we? Right. Yeah. You're you're lazy, um, or you know. You're not taking, and I think this is the difference: is that there's the assumption that the access to opportunity is the same. Right. Right. 
and that's that's not the case. Uh, or we look to the exceptions to the rule. We look at the right. the athletes and the entertainers uh, right. who who uh, well if they if they did it, um, you know, and, and never mind that we're looking at you know one individual out of you know however many millions. That's right. that's this way. If we moved from that idea of an individualist society to a collectivist society, and this has nothing to do with capitalism or socialism or communism, uh, but everything to do with how we think about one another. It's, it's love, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, right. It's you know look upon others as being of more value than yourself. Uh, a bad paraphrase of, of Philippians two. Um, this this should be the heart of the Christian community, and instead it's it's not even there. How do we even begin to enact this jubilee ethic and do a one eighty and change the way in which we live the Christian life? We're so far away. How do we even begin to turn around? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean it has to happen. Um, in I would say in in through discipleship, right? That, I mean, uh, our discipleship should orient us and this gets maybe to some of your point, um, towards like, it should be well, like, what are we striving towards? Right. And if, if Jesus's central teaching was on the kingdom of God, what does that actually mean for us, to all of us? And I think it forces us to wrestle with what is God's dream for us and how do we um, begin to recapture um, from the Hebrew scriptures, a theology of shalom that recognizes that we are intertwined with one another, that our well-being is connected to one another. Um, I mean, that's why you go from Luke, where there's these, this radical economic teachings from Jesus, to the book of Acts, and all of a sudden, you have these communities that are being described as sharing all things in common, right? And no one goes, because they understand shalom. They understand um, that God desires uh, us to live into God's future for us where everyone has everything that they need and everyone is safe and everyone can flourish. Right. Um, that's precisely, but we've got to be able to capture that first. Um, and then realize that God wants to make this real and that we need to embody this together in community and that everyone it's actually good for everyone. No one loses out in this world. It's not like what we're talking about is not, um, you know, black people taking everybody's money and everybody else is going to struggle now. no, we're trying to envision a world where we can all flourish and where we're all okay, where we all are doing well um, as God desires for all of us. And so um, that's going to take some work though, because we're deeply, deeply shaped by hyper individualism, um, by this meritocracy, um, by the logic of capitalism that we take for granted and give holy sanction to. So we can't, you can't make any critiques on it otherwise than like we said, you're a communist now. Right. <clears throat> and so I think that um, there's a lot of work that we've got to do to re-disciple our economic reasoning, our economic imagination for what's possible and realize that we can all flourish together. I mean, that's one of the things that was beautiful about Dr. King and what he was trying to do at the end of his life was the poor people's campaign. <clears throat> and he wanted to bring together all poor people across all different races, including poor white people. Right. He's like, for any that will, like, he understood the challenge. He's like, he, he understood that for some white people, even those who are in similar social and economic conditions as many black and brown people were, 
um, that their racial identity and sense of belonging was so powerfully uh, shaped and determined by whiteness that they would not even necessarily be in solidarity. But for those that would, he, he's inviting them in to link arms, uh, this interracial linking arms and demanding for a new world where we can all flourish together. And, and I think that um, it's those kind of dangerous kingdom dreams, right, um, that we've got to lean into. But so long as we're so stuck to the status quo, we will never take that step forward. You know, people talk about taking a step out of the boat, right? <laughs> we talk about Peter. Um, but we're scared to, um, I think, so often in the church to step out of the boat of the status quo and, in, and towards God's kingdom and what he's inviting us into. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll close with this because I think we could just keep talking about this for hours, but um, we should probably wrap this up. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with with people uh, in that are doing the work of, of racial reconciliation and working toward racial justice. Uh, just yesterday, uh, on the pod, I recorded a, a podcast episode with with Daniel Hill. I don't know if you're aware of him. Oh yeah, yep. Uh, and um, about a month and a half ago, I talked with uh, Brenda Salter McNeil, and yeah. I've I've ended the all these conversations by asking the same question, and that's the year 2020 has seen seismic shifts and so much about our national life, our cultural life. Um, how we engage in so many different ways uh, has been challenged and changed by this year. How have you seen the conversation on justice shift through the course of 2020? Yeah. um, There's no question that there's been enormous shifts going on um, and it's gone in two different directions. I mean, that's what I've seen, right? I've seen, um, I've seen, uh, deepening of commitments towards justice. I've seen awakening to justice. Um, I, I mean, one of the things I do, I'm a co-leader um, in my own community that's just like a relational network of Christians um, who are collaborating with organizers and just the good work that's happening in our city. And for the first time in the, <laughs> these past few months, we've had like almost like triple the amount of like faith leaders showing up and participating and actually They've known about us, right? But they they weren't actually taking the extra step to get off the well the metaphorical couch because we're mostly meeting through Zoom. But um, uh, since it's COVID, right? Um, but 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 you know, just now their commitments have deepened because of what they've seen, and so that's one aspect of it. But let's be honest; like at the same time, I've also seen simultaneously people digging down deeper um, in denial, in vitriol. Um, in wanting to, you know, just lift up everything and anything that the president does and says. And I mean, there's all kinds of nonsense going on. And so I think that um, there's there's, uh, ways in which there's reason to be hopeful because of people willing to get out in the streets, people willing to speak up, um, to engage and have hard conversations in their communities. I mean, I have a feeling that my old book, trouble I've seen. I'm not really sure. I don't know the numbers, but it might have um, been read more in the last few months than it did when it first came out, you know? Um, because I mean, I just, in fact, I'm just getting nonstop requests to engage and talk to churches about racism and things like that. So there's something happening in this moment, but at the same time, um, you know, there's a lot of hard heartedness and, and ears that are not ready to hear yet also. 
Um, and so, you know, um, my hope is that that those that have been closed off would just take the risk um, of of listening and receiving the stories of, of those, especially those who suffer most in our society, um, and to treat those stories and their lived experiences as sacred, right? That's my hope. Um, but, but both of those things are realities. Um, and so, yeah, w- what's going to come out of all of this? I mean, I won't overpredict, you know, um, what's coming out of all of this. But I do think that there are more white people that at any other moment in our history that are actually committed to racial justice. That alone is something to be hopeful about. It doesn't mean that the fight isn't still long and that there's going to need to be perseverance. Um, because it's not going to be done in our generation. And hopefully folks realize that, that, that to do this work is to be in it for the long haul, that black folk know that this is an intergenerational struggle. And hopefully um, white folks can be um, preparing themselves and their children and preparing them to prepare their children for an intergenerational struggle where we can actually make some real change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I, I have hope in the younger generation and Gen Y and Gen Z um, in what I am seeing, the, the way in which many of our youth uh, are more active uh, and more engaged than I can ever recall being, you know, in my, in my teenage years. Uh, so I'm hoping that, that we see that continue. Uh, it, it is a fear for me that... Um, if 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 Joe Biden is elected president, that so many white liberals will go home and be like, "We did it. We, you know, the, the job is done." And right. there 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 right. has to be an understanding that this, you know, these are related goals, uh, but it, not even close. You know, not not right. even not even close. That's, there, that's, there's... that's not the vision. If that's the yeah. goal that we've missed. We've misdiagnosed the problem. If, if Joe Biden is seen as the answer to our problems, um, even as I would, I'm hoping that he does, because maybe it can slow the bleeding, right? But he doesn't stop the bleeding, nonetheless bring healing to our nation. And so um, we've got to do the ongoing work on the ground in our communities, 365 days out of the year, not just when the elect- election um, cycle is happening. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, Drew, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be on the podcast. Again, the book is Who Will Be a Witness? Uh, it is in stores now. The publisher is, is Herald Press. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, wherever you get your books. Uh, actually, contact your local independent bookstore. I'm sure that they would love to um, they would love for cu- to have a customer anytime, but especially support small businesses in this time. <laughs>